We continue with 1 Samuel chapter 7. We had looked at the first verse last time. The first verse which says, So the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord. They brought it to Abinadab's house on the hill and consecrated Eleazar his son to guard the ark of the Lord. God returned the ark of the covenant to his people, returned it from the hands of the Philistines all by his power as he inflicted plague upon the Philistines. By his power, really showing through a miracle, as he led the cows to go back, to not turn to their calves, to, without any sort of guidance, go back to Israel to carry that ark. The ark is there. It's taken to Kiriath-Jerim. We talked about why it might not have gone to Shiloh, that perhaps it seems like Shiloh was destroyed by the hand of Philistines. Uh, part of the judgment God brought upon Israel in letting them capture the ark and bringing defeat in really judgment on the house of Eli for his son's misuse of the ministry. And so there it is now taken to Abinadab's house. He is not a Levite. He is not a priest. There really doesn't seem to be a place for this ark to go, and so they put it in a place. And there it's going to be. And that's where we continue then in chapter 7. The ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim a long time, 20 years in all. Then all the people of Israel turned back to the Lord. So Samuel said to all the Israelites, If you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths, and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their Baals and Ashtoreths and served the Lord only. Twenty years. This incident that we have now, it's 20 years later. The Israelites had seen the judgment brought upon them as they suffered defeat at the hand of the Philistines. The Philistines were continuing to overpower them, to cause them problems. And even after then, God brings that Ark of the Covenant back from the Philistines as they had it for about seven months, brings it back. They offered a, a burnt offering, worshiping the Lord. But now, 20 years is passing. Does it seem a lot of the same old, same old with Israel here? Remember, we're still at that time of the judges towards the end, Samuel, the last judge. And is it not some of that same cycle again? that Israel falls away, God gives an enemy to oppress them, and they cry out to the Lord, deliver them, and the Lord delivers, and then they go right back. You would think that after hearing about, which they no doubt did, what happened when the Ark of the Covenant was in the Philistine cities, you'd think that as God brings that Ark of the Covenant, there'd be renewed worship for the Lord. That they would see, oh, yes, he rendered their false god 
without hands and without a head. There's nothing to those idols. Serve the Lord. But now it's 20 years. It's 20 years. Where is the first commandment? People now are turning back to the Lord. Okay, same old, same old again. Here they come eventually crying to God. And what does Samuel do? Samuel says to them, if you're returning to the Lord with all your hearts, well, this is what this means. To trust in the Lord with all your heart means that you've taken everything else out. You've turned away from the false gods, the gods of Canaan, the Ashtoreths, the Baals. These were the gods from the land of Canaan. We've talked about them a while back in the past. Maybe we'll kind of review the Baals and the Ashtoreths. They're really kind of the primary gods Baal being a male god, Ashtoreth being a female god. They do sometimes have some other names. Um, what kind of characteristics were with these gods? They had to do with really prosperity and specifically as far as with their food, with their livelihood. And so they're as far as crops. And so connected specifically with Baal would then be the weather with rain and thunder, but also then connected with fertility as they kind of see, okay, the rain waters the earth and the crops grow. The idea of fertility is connected into that. And so you have connected to Baal and Ashtoreth, the female counterpart, their fertility gods. And so that incorporated as well how they worship them. This is the false gods that were in the land they came to, and this is the false gods that they disobeyed God's command, that they welcomed into their homes and their lives, and they continued to be there. And Samuel says, well, you have to turn away from that. You can't be worshiping idols and the true God. We're going to see it. There's actually quite a few similarities here as it seems like it's same old, same old cycle with Israel. Similarities to the account with the judge Gideon. Before God raised up Gideon to be a judge, he had sent a different prophet, which was essentially the same message saying to Israel, you didn't listen to my commands. You worship the Baals. You worship the Ashtoreths. Samuel calls them to turn away but look at verse 4. So the Israelites put away their Baals and Ashtoreths and served the Lord only. Maybe not so same old, same old. We see a response. And even if it is, you know, it's the constant, here we go again. Here we go again, people of Israel, falling into the same sins like you did before, like you did last week, like you did last month. At the same time, let's also, you know, focus on what God is still doing here with his patience to them, with the fact that, you know, he is creating response in their hearts. Questions or comments here? Please. Um, who here was Baal and Ashtoreth? 
Th thank you for adding that. Um, we're going to kind of summarize and recap that you know, Baal's Asherahs, it may seem like they're local gods, but when you look at across the world, other gods, and you mentioned the Celts with Bel, that there's a lot of similarities. Even similarities in the names, you've got that, yeah, Bel, Baal. Um, even thinking how Israel, what's the word for God? Well, we see in scripture, Elohim, El. It, there is a similarity. I mean, they're using the, just words for God. And you could see how, okay, maybe it isn't that strange that Israel would adapt these things as it doesn't seem like there's much difference. As, oh, this is just what you call your God. This is what we call our God. Oh, but we're, it's all God. Oh, and, you know, God can, you know, focus on different aspects, take different forms, and it's really not that different. And maybe, you know, we are way too hasty to point the finger at Israel and say, well, how could you? It's clearly an idol. Clearly an idol. But at the same time, do we, with how people worship God, do the same thing ever? Or think of that in our minds? Oh, well, we all worship the same God. Do we? Maybe we use similar names? But it's who God is, what he's revealed about himself. Please. Yeah, your comment there too, that, you know, out in the world, there's going to be constantly things pulling you away, constantly temptations there attract, and they may just look different. That doesn't mean they aren't doing the same thing. So for the people of Israel, yeah, it was the Baal. It was the Asherah. What are the idols in our lives? They may not be things that we are physically bowing down to and praying to, but they may be things that our hearts are relying on and trusting in. And that's really the same point then here that, as Samuel says, if you're returned, Lord, with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods. Rid yourselves of the worldly gods. And I think it's, you know, appropriate direction for each of us, examine our hearts. What are we putting our trust in? Is it a time to return to the Lord and say, yeah, I, this needs to be get rid of my heart. I need to stop holding on to this. I need to stop depending upon this in this world. There, there are a lot of things that can, people can latch their hearts onto, whether it is gold or diamonds, whether it is entertainment, whether it is, you know, family and people. There are lots of things we can latch our hearts onto and how easy it happens without us even necessarily even realizing it. Not that we don't enjoy these things, not that God hasn't blessed us with these things, but to return to the Lord with all your heart. Return to the Lord with all your heart. And maybe one other kind of application thing here for us to think about. As we see Israel really, once again, still in the same situation that they've been in so long now. In this period of judges of over and over again, still 
falling into the same sins of weakness? What about our sins of weakness here? What do we find ourselves? Yeah, we know that this is not serving God. It's not, but yet, we still find ourselves doing it. We're struggling to fight against it. And I think here's also some encouragement there. Because what do you see with the people of Israel? At the word of the Lord through his servant, urging them, you see God working. You see God working. Israelites put away the Baals and Asherah and served the Lord only. That's the power of God there in their hearts. And that's the power of God working in our lives. It doesn't mean that Israel was never going to fall away. You know Israelite history well enough to know that that's not the case. Not even close. It doesn't mean, okay, that we're never going to fall into sin again, that we're never going to trust in something else or really worship something else. But see how God in his patience calls us to turn back to him and produces that repentance turning back. Here we do maybe see a bit of a change from what we've seen in the rest of the judges. Not that there wasn't real repentance there, but it's seeming to grow stronger. To grow stronger as they're turning to the Lord. And that's noticeable here in how the chapter continues. Verse 5, Then Samuel said, Assemble all Israel at Mizpah, and I will intercede with the Lord for you. When they'd assembled at Mizpah, and they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. On that day they fasted, and there they confessed. We have sinned against the Lord. Now Samuel was serving as leader of Israel at Mizpah. Here's maybe a striking difference from what we've noticed with Israel in the past during the time of the Judges. When they cried out for God's help in the past... It wasn't always the, we have sinned, help. It was the more, we have trouble, help. Please save us from the trouble, not save us from ourselves. But here, what did they do? Samuel calls them all together and says, I will intercede. I will speak on your behalf. I will offer prayer to God for your sake and the people, they drew water, poured it out before the Lord. They fasted and they confessed. We have sinned against the Lord. Three things going on here. They drew water and poured it out before the Lord. This is a visible sign of repentance here. That they would pour this water out, recognizing they are needing a cleansing. They are needing a cleansing. God has used water as a picture of that throughout his word in many ways. And we see it in the Old Testament, something the Israelites would have been doing already is that if they became unclean, ceremonially unclean, they had to have a cleansing ritual. There's a, God's giving that picture of water. Water washes. Here now, specifically tied to sin, this was a ritual they did. When it's, well, it's not the outward uncleanness now they are, but they recognize we have sinned. Pour out this water. 
They are seeking to be cleansed. Now, when you think about it and see, okay, you already have this water being cleansing here. It, doesn't, it kind of makes a little more sense when John the Baptist comes and he's baptizing them. It's not like John invented baptism. There already is this kind of cleansing happening. And what was John's baptism? Baptism of repentance for forgiveness. It's really not that much different than what's already going on here. Now, it was certainly a special call for repentance as he prepared the way for Christ right there. But you really, they, were, they were aware of this kind of thing. They were familiar with it. And you see how really, even this already, it's, it's that foreshadowing to not just a ritual, but to the sacrament of baptism, of which God is not simply picturing a cleansing, but with water connected to his word, he actually is cleansing us from our sins. Any questions on that? Please. That is a good question. When did the act of baptism actually start? Um, and maybe to try to help distinguish too, okay, they would have had a ceremonial cleansing. Um, we can look that up in Numbers chapter 19, I believe. And that's where that, if they became unclean, they would do that. And it was, a, it was a unique ritual that had to do with um, mixing water with ashes from a red heifer. Yeah, Numbers chapter 19, the water of cleansing. And so you already see there, there is this element of being washed, water pouring on, and it's to cleanse you, make you clean. Now, was it called baptism? Well, no, because the word baptism Come, this is not Hebrew, but it is a washing, and that's what baptism is, a washing. So you see a washing already there. Um, and then connected to others too, there'd be other, other kind of ceremonial washings that would happen. And so here it's already connected this idea of being unclean with sin. And so throughout time, it's kind of this, this ritual that's always been there with them. It's pointed then even more specifically when you get to John, that, okay, this is for forgiveness of sins. Already idea here, being clean. And so it's something that God really has been kind of developing throughout time with his people. It was now all of a sudden that here, there it is. Now, baptism, as far as what God has given us now, that came at Christ's command. That came as he said, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That comes with Christ instituting it. But you see, just like, really, the Lord's Supper, that too is foreshadowed with God's people in the Old Testament with the Passover meal. God has, gives countless pictures and rituals for his people to point them to the truth. And those pictures are also then pointing out to the special grace that he gives with the sacraments, foreshadowing it. Please. 
That is a very good question. Is John's baptism the same as Christ's baptism? And the simple, well, I don't know if there is a simple answer. I guess if you want a very simple answer, it would be no. They are not the same. And that becomes very clear as the Apostle Paul is on missionary journeys and he gets to Ephesus. And there are, there are believers there who only know of John's baptism. John's baptism is not the exact same as Jesus' baptism that he instituted because of really what it's being connected to. Now, there's a similarity here. There's a, and that's maybe to make the point here, John's baptism was a baptism preparing the people for the Christ, for baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. Forgiveness being declared, proclaimed to the people. But it was looking ahead. The baptism that Christ instituted, once again, the similarity, it's forgiveness, and that is given. Forgiveness is given there, but it connects you with his death connection with his spirit because it's already been accomplished. And that's where you're going to see the difference there. John's baptism one preparing, pointing ahead. Christ's baptism is one that connects us to what he has done. And giving those promises there that there is new birth, new life. Any other questions? I think it's beneficial though as we look at baptisms, realize, okay, it's not as all, all of a sudden God introduced this new picture of water to cleanse. Here we already have water, and water, okay, that's water saying, I'll repent, I need cleansing. The second one, you have fasted. They fasted. They, that was a typical sign of repentance, that they would refrain from eating. Uh, essentially, you're removing things from the body as far as taking care of those needs because your focus is on your soul. Now, do we need to fast? No. God has not commanded it. Is it a good thing to fast? It can be. It can be. If it's done with the proper heart. I mean, look at it. Oh, it's all about the heart as far as returning our hearts to the Lord. It can be a thing. Oh, you know, okay that for this period of time, I'm, you know, I'm just going to kind of remove whatever the normal things of life or regular eating because I'm going to use it to focus on my Lord. Now, if it's not actually accomplishing that purpose, if it's not actually now directing our hearts, then it's not really beneficial, is it? It's certainly not something that we have to do. Any questions on that? And so you have the ritual of them pouring water, needing this cleansing, fasting, their focus there, and then the verbal confession. They directly say it. We have sinned against the Lord. As we talked about how it seems like maybe they're just once again this cycle again, and how, you know, at times that we find ourselves there too with our sins of weakness, that over and over again we keep struggling. Here you see the great value of confession and absolution. That 
Maybe sometimes wonder, why do we do the same things in worship all the time? Why do we always begin with confessing our sins? Well, because we're always sinning. <laughs> because we're always still struggling, you know. And that's where we come to God, turning our hearts to him, recognizing this is what we need. We're returning to the Lord in repentance. Questions or comments before we move on? Verse 7. When the Philistines heard that Israel had assembled at Mizpah, the rulers of the Philistines came up to attack them. When the Israelites heard of it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. They said to Samuel, Do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us, that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. Then Samuel took a suckling lamb and sacrificed it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on Israel's behalf, and the Lord answered him. Samuel serves the people as they come, and now they're worried. They're fearful. The, here the Philistines are again. The Philistines did not go away once the ark was returned. They'd been around this whole 20 years, and here they are again. Same old, same old. And so they, they go to Samuel, though. A little different than 20 years ago when they said, oh, bring the ark. That'll do it. No, they go to Samuel. God is working in the hearts of his people, even when it doesn't always seem like it on the outside. Even when it looks like the same. Well, here we see and they, what they tell Samuel. They don't say to Samuel, you know, we, want, we need a miracle. They don't say to Samuel, we've got this plan of how we're going to have you delivered, how God's going to deliver us. They say to Samuel, do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us. Keep doing it. Not just say a prayer for us, but keep on praying. Do not stop. We need the Lord's help. And Samuel goes and offers a lamb on behalf of the people as part of the crying out to the Lord with an offering. The burnt offering is a whole offering, a complete dedication. Samuel already called upon Israel, return the Lord with all your heart, and now this is we're doing this. As we give this complete offering, as we're going to keep on crying out to the Lord. And the Lord answered him. The Lord answered him. Questions or comments here? We're going to see now how the Lord answered him. Verse 10, while Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. But that day the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. The men of Israel rushed out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines, slaughtering them along the way to a point below beth Car. And so if you think here what the scenario is, Samuel had called all these Israelites together at Mizpah, and they're all in one place. 
and I don't know, maybe you've never thought about this too, but you think about as far as attacks upon God's people and his church and what seems like an easy target for the devil, when would be an ideal time for him to hurt God's people? Well, when they're all together. When they gather all together. And so you think, okay, well, times of worship. Maybe times of special worship when, you know, as Cinder, we have special celebration, and there's lots of God's people together. That would seem like an easy target. And that's what the Philistines have now come and done. They heard they're at Mizpah. Oh, well, they're not scattered anymore. This makes sense. Let's go attack. While Samuel was sacrificing. Okay, even more an ideal time. They're not even ready for war. Here they are, worshiping. They're completely preoccupied. We're going to catch them off guard. Remember what the words right before this were. The Lord answered him. A similarity to Gideon. The Lord thundered with loud thunder. Not, there wasn't thunder with Gideon. It was confusion, but essentially the same result. There's a panic. God is the one who brings it. Because really, Israel wasn't going to deliver themselves in this situation. They were worshiping. God protects his people. Samuel here is sacrificing. In no way ready to fight. threw them into a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. And then God uses the people. He sends them out as the Philistines are panicking. The men of Israel rush them, slaughtering them all along the way. Clearly, this is a battle that has been won by God. God showing that he is the one answering as well. You probably don't think of Samuel as a military man. That's not usually what comes to mind with Samuel. You think of him as the boy in the tabernacle, hearing the Lord calling to him. You think of him as the, the prophet, the one who anoints David, the one who continues to try to call back Saul. But look at the victory. Look at the battle that was won here. Through Samuel. Through Samuel serving the people, serving the Lord. God brings victories into our life in ways we don't necessarily expect without us necessarily having to do things. He does that simply out of his grace for his people to the prayers of his people. That's really what this is a response to. As they pray, prayed to God, they were worshiping him, God took care of his people. Any questions or comments here? Please. This is obviously this Yes, you're correct. Mizpah and Ephraim. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, remember, things are not really that far. You've got Shiloh is really not around, but that would have been around in that same kind of area. This is there seemed to be the most natural spot. Why Mizpah? It may be that 
This was kind of on the western side closest to where the Philistines would have been as far as their contact. That's okay, they're crying out for deliverance from the Philistines. Okay, we'll gather here. We'll gather here. Any other questions or comments? Verse 12. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen. He named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued, and they stopped invading Israel's territory. Throughout Samuel's lifetime, the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines. The towns from Ekron to Gath, the Philistines had captured from Israel, were restored to Israel, and Israel delivered the neighboring territory from the hands of the Philistines. And there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. After the Lord gives a victory, gives the deliverance that Israel asked of him, answering their prayers, Samuel sets up a monument. A stone that he named Ebenezer. Ebenezer means stone of help. And he says there why he named it that, because thus far the Lord has helped us. This is not the first time that we see monuments set up by God's people. What's the value in setting up such a monument? Okay, so the people don't forget. Yes. And to think who, as far as what people, to forget, recognize first it's right for those people themselves because how easy it is to, all right, something in the past. How many things from our own lives in the past do we forget? Do we really, maybe it's not that we've lost it completely, but it's not something that comes to mind unless something triggers it. This is a trigger for the people. A trigger to remind, oh, yeah, that stone. That's the time the Lord rescued us. Not just for those people, but then also for the people after, the ones who did not experience it. Because they see a stone there, a monument. Well, what's that for? They wouldn't have necessarily known. Maybe they had heard the account, but once again, they wouldn't have thought about it, especially as it did not specifically relate to their lives. They did not experience it. A monument, some physical reminder, is certainly valuable for us because. What does it do? It turns our heart. And so some sort of physical reminder for the Lord, it's a valuable thing. We don't worship the rock. We don't worship the stone. They're not doing that. But it's there as a reminder of the grace that God has given. Do we have any of those kind of things in our lives? Do we use objects, monuments, to remind us. Just like the monuments today, they're, they're tearing down. Okay, sometimes monuments are being torn down because you don't remember. What about maybe thinking specifically regarding, you know, the truths from God, what he has done. Can you think of any sort of monuments or objects that we use? Okay, the cross is the most obvious one. It's up there, the cross. We don't worship the cross, 
And hopefully it has not become so commonplace in our life that we don't think about it. But the cross there is to remind us of what Christ has done dying for us. Remind us of the love, the deliverance that God has given. Other reminders. Okay, we got the baptismal font. It's a functional thing as it is going to be used, but also to remind each of us of our baptisms. It's why it's here front and center. Do we have another one? The church itself, yeah. You think about it. The, when you think about what the church is, you know, as far as the church of God, that's people. But, well, why do we have a physical building? Functional in that we come together and worship it, but it also serves as a reminder, too. This is the house of God. It turns our hearts to our Lord. And that's why, you know, so much care and thought gets taken into decorating and what we put up in our church because it's not just, oh, let's make it look nice. Oh, we want it to look nice to give glory to God. Absolutely. But it's also what it's communicating. Look around at all these windows. The comment that, yeah, as you see different kinds of churches, in most cases, even though they are different in design, you usually can tell it's a church. And, you know, maybe one of the standing features is you see a cross somewhere, or you see just the general shape that's okay, because it's designed in a way to lift our hearts to our Lord. Please. Symbols on the pyramids, yes. Yeah. There is, you, you've got, as far as doves there, as far as peace that's being brought, okay, that's what comes with Christ. What a gift that God gives us with symbolism. Really, you know, we already saw it as the Israelites were doing it with pouring out water. That was a living symbol. But the symbols he uses to turn our hearts to him. This is probably a really good time to be soaking some of that stuff in because there's a lot around Christmas of the different symbols, the different objects. And may those serve the purpose that they really are meant to turn our hearts to him. Not just, oh, it looks nice, it's festive, but to remember to remember what he has done for us. You're pointing out that, you know, there are others, other than maybe just even objects and images we see, there's other ritual symbolism that we do in our worship. You know, the sign of the cross. Once again, same kind of thing. Whether it's a physical object cross or the motion with the hands, it's to point us to what God has done, to turn our hearts to it. One more thing we want to say about Ebenezer here. Um, if you remember back from a few chapters ago in 1 Samuel chapter 4, that the Israelites had camped at a place called Ebenezer. And that's when the Philistines came and captured the ark. Now, it's probably not the same place when you start looking at far as different other locations in context. It's probably a different place, but yeah, at the same time, as God's really kind of 
pointing ahead, we read this chapter about the ark being captured, Ebenezer, a time when Israel was not turning to the Lord for their help. They was turning to the exact opposite, not using the symbolism, the ritual as the point of turning their hearts to the Lord, but actually relying on the symbols themselves. You see that kind of already hinting and looking ahead to now here, Ebenezer, this stone of help. What happened there at Ebenezer? No, that was not us turning to the Lord for help. Here, the Lord has helped us so far. The Lord has helped us so far. The Philistines are, are subdued and stop invading Israel's territory. They are not conquered. They are not destroyed. Now, that does not happen until the time of David and his reign. But they are subdued. They are no longer really overpowering Israel. doesn't mean they aren't trying, because even there, it's the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines throughout Samuel's lifetime. They are still fighting. They are still bringing battle against Israel. But you see the Lord's hand with continued deliverance to them. And here again, we see Samuel, more of a military man than we probably think of him usually. Because it's with his leading, with his judging, that Israel regains territory. It gets towns back. And also there's peace between Israel and the Amorites. Well, they just popped out of nowhere. This is all about the Philistines. Here, I think, is another similarity you see with Gideon again. Um, not that the Gideon was also dealing with the Amorites, it was the Midianites, but when that prophet came before Gideon, brought deliverance through God, it was pointing of, you are worshiping the false gods of the Amorites. The Amorites are Canaanites, um, a prominent group of Canaanites. Canaan's the land, there's different groups of ethnic people within the land, but as a whole, then they're called Canaanites. The Amorites are prominent Canaanites. Um, you can find their ancestry in Genesis chapter 10. They are descendants of Ham. But this is the land that they've lived in, that they have settled in. They are Canaanites. And so we see, too, the deliverance that God gives now through Samuel it wasn't just even to the Philistines. No, the, the Amorites, ones who, uh, with Joshua leading them into Canaan, had defeated some of their kings, but then they never really got rid of them like so many other nations of the Canaanites. Here, God is continuing to provide for his people by giving peace between them. Doesn't mean they're gone, but there's peace. So your question here really has to do with as far as what we kind of already saw with turning hearts, returning to the Lord, trusting him with all our heart. Okay, so what does it mean to love God or do we love other things? Do we love people? Well, of course we can love other things. We can love other people. It's okay to talk like that because look how God said, love God above all things. Not that you don't love other things or other people, but you love God more than those. 
let's, let's move on to the last few verses here. Verse 15, Samuel continued as Israel's leader all the days of his life. From year to year, he went on a circuit from Bethel to Gilgal to Mizpah, judging Israel in all those places. But he always went back to Ramah, where his home was. And there he also held court for Israel. And he built an altar there to the Lord. Notice what is not part of his circuit, what's not part of his normal path. Shiloh is not listed. Well, that's because Shiloh is likely not around. And that also bears impact there as far as him built an altar to the Lord. Well, why would he build an altar? Well, because there is no public worship happening in Shiloh anymore. And so whether this was something that God had specifically told him, or whether this was the prophet of God recognizing this is an exceptional circumstance because there is none, this is, you know, really you see him upholding serving the Lord. Think about that circuit. That's not really how we see as far as God using his servants today so much. At least not necessarily the way we might normally see it. Um, here Samuel is really trying to serve all the nation of Israel. A nation that's, you know, that's, it's not a huge area when you think about it in comparison to our country, certainly not. Really even in comparison to our state. The land of Israel is much smaller than the state of Wisconsin. But when you think about it, then okay, one person is supposed to be now serving all of this. You know, it makes sense why he's going to kind of go around place to place to check. It's similar in some ways to when the first missionaries came over to America and you did not have all settled kind of churches and things and towns were much more further apart and you didn't have as many missionaries to serve. And so what are they doing? They're traveling from place to place. We do occasionally still get that. Even with our churches today, some of our churches out in, uh, really, out of the Midwest, where we don't have as many, there's some distances away. We even, even in some of the Midwest, you know, a, a pastor will travel from place to place and preach. Maybe another similarity we see here is this. So as he has this circuit, he's kind of watching over. We do have circuit pastors that cover a little bigger area. They have their congregation, they're serving, but they're also then, you know, checking in and helping to serve the other pastors at the other churches in that way. You see the benefit there of, okay, he doesn't just stay in one place. It's not everyone coming to him, but no, he's going around to continue to serve God's people. And he did it year after year. This was a regular pattern to try to reach God's people, to try to lead God's people, to judge them. Good, good question. Okay. The, good question. We, the word altar, it's a word we're familiar with as well. Um, altar, it's right behind me. That's the altar there that we approach God with prayer. Now, certainly, we can pray to God anywhere. We can speak to God anywhere, but as our, okay, this is the setup as God, you know, the altar in the past with Israel, that's where they were burning sacrifices and that. 
Well, we don't do that because Christ has already sacrificed himself, but look what is right above the altar. There you have that symbol that we remember that this is where we're turning our hearts to, turning them to the Lord. Any questions or comments? It may not seem like a super exciting chapter that, okay, a lot of the same old, same old of Israelites attacked by an enemy. Here God delivers. But appreciate how God is giving victory in the hearts too. It can be frustrating when you see people that it seems like there's no change, that they keep hearing the message they, that God's word doesn't seem to be taking root. Where's the evidence? Appreciate the victory that God gives in the heart. Try to take notice of it. That leads us into where we're going to get next time with 1 Kings chapter 8. You're going to see that, well, the parts turn the of the people turn to the Lord, but they still aren't perfect, just as we aren't either. And the Lord continues to rule over his people, to rule in hearts with patience and with love. Let us pray. O Lord, you are our help. Come to our aid as we struggle with the sins in our life with weakness, with ones we continually fall into. Move us to come to you confessing our sin with repentance, turning our heart to you, and assure us of the forgiveness that you do give us, the help you have given us, not only for the trouble we endure in this life, but eternal help through your son Jesus. Amen.